Welcome to Urban Forum Northwest with your host, Eddie Rye. Uh, we're going to start right off. We have a, a pleasure of having uh, Congressman Adam Smith, uh, who is a Democrat from Washington's 9th Congressional District, who is my member of Congress. He also is chair of the House Armed Services Committee, and he has been on frequently because a lot of things has been happening uh, by the person that just exited the White House and went back down to Florida. So uh, Congressman Adam Smith, as always, thank you for being here, but I'd like to also have you start off with what you think is most important in, on, on your legislative agenda. And as far as that uh, goes, uh, I want you to comment on is our democracy really at stake? Yeah, I guess two things leap to mind. Um, I'll go I'll go local and then uh, more global after that. Uh, local, you know, affordable housing and just affordability in King County. Um, the, the high cost of living has really put a lot of pressure on people here, and particularly when it comes to housing. So I've been working with a lot of different affordable housing groups. And there's actually a lot of great projects that are going on. Um, you know, Plymouth, uh, Forterra. Um, Compass Point, a lot of different NGOs out there. Uh, the Filipino Community Center just opened not long ago, affordable housing for uh, seniors. Um, uh, I think it was 94 units that they built. So there's a lot of work going on to try to try to address this challenge. But that's the biggest thing I'm focused on in King County is how do we get better social services and affordable housing in particular. And then on the national side, yeah, it's a really scary time. I mean, and I think President Biden said it very well that, you know, the Republican Party under Donald Trump, and they are definitely under Donald Trump, basically believes that, you know, either they win or it must have been a cheat election. And you know, that's just not democracy. That's authoritarianism. And basically heads I win, tails you lose. Their attacks on our representative democracy are unprecedented. I mean, no party has ever, caught, you know, basically tried to overturn a legitimate election. And that's what they did and continue to do. So, yes, our democracy is very much in jeopardy. And you know, when you're thinking about who to vote for and who to support, that's got to be at the top of the list of the issues. Will they support our electoral system? Will they support our basic representative democracy? Or would they follow Donald Trump down the road of authoritarianism? And that's, that's about as fundamental as it gets. And then lastly, to go more globally, I'm also very focused on the war in Ukraine trying to find a pathway to ending that and a pathway to protecting the Ukrainian people and making sure that their sovereignty and their democracy are preserved. And that's having a huge impact, certainly on the Ukrainian people, but also globally, uh, just because of the impact it's having on energy prices and food prices, amongst other things. So those are three big things I'm focused on. There's obviously a lot others, but a lot of others, but um, that's, that's sort of my focus of attention right now. Do you think that uh, with the elections of the Secretary of States and the other uh, MAGA supporters who are occupying state-level positions of authority, do you think they have enough of those people in place to sway a legitimate election uh, to the wrong person? Not yet. Um, this election is going to be crucial. I mean, you've got, you know, You've got election deniers um, pushing the, the big lie uh, that, that there was any fraud in the election and that Trump actually won, which is completely unsupported by any factual evidence. You've got them running in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona. Um, and if they are able to win those elections, I mean, look, look at what Trump tried to do after the last election. He went to the existing election commissioners in Georgia, in Arizona, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, 
and said, don't certify the result. Just change it. Just change it so that I win. He put enormous pressure on a lot of people. There was, you know, in Michigan, the election board was asked not to certify. And it was split 2-2 for a while until finally one of the Republicans did the right thing and certified it. We, we've heard about all the phone calls down to Georgia. You know, how Trump has turned on people like, you know, Governor Ducey, uh, former Governor Ducey in Arizona and Governor uh, Kemp in Georgia because they refuse to overturn the election. If he gets, you know, people who are loyal to him into those positions, I have no doubt um, that they would try to overturn him. That's that's why, you know, it's cliche at this point, but this is the most important election of our lifetime here. We can't let those people get back in charge. And by the way, we can't let the Republicans get back in charge of Congress. Because uh, they, too, will do Trump's authoritarian bidding if they are able to succeed. Were you surprised that uh, 38 percent of the Hispanic population of uh, registered voters voted for Trump in 2020? Not really. I mean, yeah, and that's the other side of it. OK, so, you know, you've certainly got um, how horrible the Republican Party is under Trump. But voters, you know, of, of all um, stripes, um, you know, have concerns about the, the direction of our country and most most directly concerns about economic opportunity. Um, and, you know, Donald Trump is the, the ultimate con man. And he spoke to those concerns. He spoke to that economic insecurity. And this affects a lot of, of people of color, uh, Hispanic, black um, and Trump. You know, went out there and, and spoke to that frustration. He didn't have any any plans to do anything about it, um, but he spoke to that frustration. And we as Democrats had, had better heed that call. We'd better address those concerns, you know, on building a better, fairer economy, um, or we're going to be vulnerable to this this type of con man uh, for a long time. Well, I know that uh, I was one of the people, as matter of fact, fifty years ago next month. I was one of the people that occupied uh, the, uh, the vacant Beacon Hill School with the late Roberto Maestas, Juan Jose Bocanegra, and a lot of others, including Sam Martinez, uh, and, uh, back in the day. And it was like 50 years ago. And I know that that uh, uh, my Latino and Chicano friends would not be supporting any party that would be building a wall, that would be treating uh, folks like they're being treated, like being bust from uh, uh, the bigot governor, the bigot Abbott governor of Texas, busting those people, risking their lives to make a political point, busting them to New York and to uh, Washington, D.C. And I'm just saying, how could a large piece, a number of people vote when they see, for a party when they see what's happening? And I'm just, I just, I think it'll change because if this is some of the, uh, I mean, I, I just can't believe what I'm saying. But then again, I think about uh, Abbott and his uh, horsemen, uh, the, the way they treated the Haitians. That's the other thing. Why is it that the only black country in the Western Hemisphere is uh, being treated like it is, no support? And uh, Congressman Smith, as we know, Haiti had to pay reparations to France and the United States for almost 50 years because Toussaint Louverture overturned slavery in Haiti. And so that hurt uh, the slave industry, so that France didn't get their cotton. Now they got reparations, and that's why Haiti doesn't have an infrastructure. Is there anything that people can do in Congress or anywhere else to help the only black country uh, in the Western Hemisphere? Yeah, no, you you 
played out the history, you know, spot on. Um, one of the best things we could do is is welcome the immigrants, number one, and number two, continue to provide economic support to Haiti to try to correct those wrongs that you correctly described. And look, there's no doubt about it that, that, that xenophobia, racism, anti-immigrant bias um, by people like Donald Trump and like Governor Abbott, um, you know, clearly drive a lot of these policies. Uh, that have been so clearly unfair to the Haitian people and to a lot of other immigrants too. Um, you know, who who can forget Donald Trump talking about you know how much you know how big a problem immigrants were, and then saying you know why can't we get more immigrants from Norway? There you go. <laughs> I mean, can, can, can you be more transparently racist in your approach uh, to, to immigration in the world than that? So yeah, we we've got a lot to push back against um, because you know Trump and his followers are are all kinds of awful on a whole whole series of levels. And let me sorry, let me amend that. Not all of Trump's followers fall into that category, um, to be sure. Uh, as I said, there are some legitimate grievances out there about economic insecurity that Trump pretends to address. Um, and that's why I would say part of what the Democratic Party has to do is we have, we got to reach out to some of those people. I, fascinating article about Ro Khanna, who's a colleague of mine. He's on the Armed Services Committee, member of Congress from down in California, who spent you know, a good chunk of August going to factory towns in the Midwest, um, you know, a lot of them that had supported Trump, you know, and, and outlining an economic policy that would bring them back in, you know, that would create more jobs um, you know, from, from the devastation they've suffered in the last 30 or 40 years, actually address the issues so that Trump's you know, xenophobia and racism and bigotry and con man job uh, doesn't get people to vote for him. Well, I'm thinking that Roe v. Wade and what the uh, continuing saga with uh, the past president at, at Mar-a-Lago with uh, all this uh, vital and top secret information that's floating around. And hopefully that uh, all of the women, the 53 percent that voted for Donald Trump uh, in 2016 will change their mind and uh, actually uh, stand up for a woman's right to make, uh, choose her own healthcare situation. So uh, I'm just, I, I think yeah. that between that and uh, actually the uh, success the president and Congress has had, uh, certain members of Congress has had, uh, the last six or seven weeks has changed a lot of minds. What do you think about that? Absolutely, it gives us an enormous opportunity um, on all of those issues. Number one is choice because you know, we've been you know, trying to tell people that the Republican Party is extreme under Donald Trump. Now, like I said, I've worked with a lot of Republicans through the years. There's plenty of Republicans I have no problem working with. Um, I think bipartisanship is important, but not with this particular group because they've pledged allegiance to Donald Trump and extremism. And what that you know, reversal of Roe versus Wade and the Dobbs decision did is it made it real. It made it concrete. Now, we're not just, you know, we're not just trying to scare you by saying boo. This is what they do. They are taking away people's rights. They are taking away women's rights, most specifically women's right to an abortion, women's right to access to health care. And, you know, this is but the tip of it. And, you know, Clarence Thomas you know, wrote in his opinion, you know, he wants to, to go after, you know, the, the, the right to, to gay marriage, the right to contraception. Um, so, you know, that extremism was made real by the Dobbs decision. And then I think we, we need to really give the January 6th commission its due. Um, and Nancy Pelosi in particular, she's the one who made sure that that commission got done when it was being challenged from a whole bunch of different directions. She made it happen and they have exposed 
I mean, I thought I knew everything about what Trump had done to try to overturn the election and his involvement in January 6th. They showed me stuff I didn't know. And they made it clear to the American people what the threat is, and it put those issues on the ballot. And then we had a, a open seat a special election in upstate New York just a couple of weeks ago. You know, there was a Trump district. I think it was Trump plus two. Um, we had a good candidate. They had a good candidate. Our candidate ran on choice, on the threat to choice. And he wound up winning by three points in an election that the polls said he was going to lose. We can replicate that across the country, and we can win enough elections to, to, to hold on to the House and the Senate if we drive that message. So I'm 100, 100% agree with you. I think it's an enormous opportunity. Sarah Palin leaves it now, but before you go, I just want you to say hi to, uh, to retired superstar attorney Lim Howe. And since we have the Miss Delta, Saidi Abdullah on the line, just say hi to both of them before you go, sir. And uh, he, if you want to see Congressman Adam Smith uh, Sunday, September 11th, 11 o'clock a.m., he will be at the Federal Way City Hall so uh, for a town hall meeting. And he also is accessible uh, by visiting uh, uh, his Facebook page and website. So uh, thank you very much, Congressman Adam Smith. We appreciate it. Appreciate it. It's good. To, uh, I, saw, I saw Lim just a couple nights ago. So, and as as I was telling Eddie Lim, I've I've known you for thirty, yeah, thirty eight years now. Ever since you were the uh, the leader of the Gary Hart delegation back in nineteen eighty four. Um, so uh, always. You're always, muted, Lim. Yeah, appreciate your leadership. He's Lim is muted. He was talking, but he was muted. Adam. Uh, Tell them who supported you when you first ran for the state legislature for the Senate back when? Lim, you you were one of the first, 1990s. But when I was uh, 25 years old and a lot of people looked at me and said, yeah, this isn't going to work. I I, I do remember that that support. You've been a terrific activist and a terrific supporter for a long time, and I really appreciate it. Ms. Abdullah, would you like to have a comment for the congressman? Hello, Congressman, how are you today? Um, I just want to appreciate the thing that you've done for the 30th district, which is where I live, um, and then continue to look forward to, to seeing the work that you're going to be able to bring back um, to our area. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. I always appreciate working with you as well. I appreciate your leadership. So thank you. Appreciate it, Eddie. And he'll be in, he'll be in the 30th district on Sunday at yep. 11 o'clock at Federal Way City yep. Hall. Okay. Thank okay. you Okay. Appreciate it. Okay, then. Thank you very much, Congressman. Now we'll go to uh, my next guest, who is Attorney Lim Howell, to talk about the latest uh, maneuvers being made by uh, certain members of the judiciary to get Donald Trump off the hook. So, uh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Irene Rice, I forgot, had a, a announcement. Irene, you was a little late, girl. Give us your announcement right quick. Okay. Uh, go ahead. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for inviting me, Mr. Eddie. We are inviting everyone in the minority community to attend the inaugural event. It's virtual via Zoom for the inaugural event of Association of Women and Minority Businesses on September 14th from 3 to 5 p.m. You will hear from the transportation leaders, you know, Department of Transportation, Sound Transit, and the Port of Seattle and DES. Uh, regarding transportation infrastructure funds and how and what are their goals and initiatives for women, minority, and BIPOC communities. Please check our website. Get me that information. I'll put it on my website as well. Yes, I will email it to you. 
Okay, because we got to go back to Lim Howell. You just missed the congressman, but he might hear you anyway. So thank you, Irene. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, Lim Howell. Let me just say this, Eddie, before I get to the subject matter. I think that the Democrats are missing the bullet, and the bullet is abortion. You build your whole campaign around that because you saw what it did in upstate New York. You saw what it did in Kansas. If that's the theme, go out there and go floor the accelerator and make it abortion, surrounded with a freedom issue. The government shouldn't be interfering in our lives and so forth and just go after it. And you don't give a, 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 a right 50 years ago and take it away. I really think if the Democrats bore in on that, they can win. Now, getting back to my topic, we know Trump is a thief. What the hell is he doing with all those secret documents at Mar-a-Lago? I think that it's disgraceful what the judge has done in Florida. This judge, Eileen Cannon, when she appointed uh, a special master. You know, a special master is supposed to help the judge sort through a bunch of uh, pretrial issues. But that wasn't uh, what she did. Uh, the judge completely disregarded the famous case of United States versus Nixon. There, the Supreme Court in an eight to zero decision held that the presidential privilege cannot override the needs of the judicial process in a criminal proceeding. Number one, Trump does not have any type of uh, privilege. Yeah, I take that back. He has one, the attorney-client privilege. But the uh, Justice Department took care of that by sending in a group that did a survey to make sure that none of the uh, attorney-client materials were included in the trove that they got from going on a warrant and capturing all that secret stuff. No, nobody has explained to me what is he doing with this stuff? I know his lapdogs like uh, Marco Rubio go around saying, well, you know, this and that. And so, well, tell us, Senator, what's he doing with secret stuff that doesn't belong to him, that belongs to the government? What is he doing it, doing with it there? But they, they don't answer it. I, what I I dis like is that we don't zero in on it. This Judge Eileen Cannon did something more than was asked for by the Trump group. Number one, they didn't ask for a special master until two weeks after uh, the August 8th uh, warrant production. So then I, I, I just don't understand why she even granted it. But she went further. She said none of the documents that were retrieved can be used in the investigation of, uh, of Trump, you know, and Trump went into court 70 miles away. So he was for forum shopping. So he went 70 miles away to a judge that they had just appointed. And she, of course, ignored the law and 
ruled for a special master. But here's the point. I just got word that the Department of Justice is appealing the decision. I don't agree with that. I'll tell you why. Because of there is what was called the Presidential uh, Act. Remember, the Presidential uh, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, Eddie. That's what happens when you're 86 years old. It's called the, it's covered by the Presidential uh, Property Act, which means that the, it, the, the, the property of the president is not his property, it's the government's property, and it belongs to the government. And the only court that has jurisdiction is the district court in the Capitol, the DC district court. She admits Trump went into court under that act. And she admits that her court doesn't have jurisdiction, but then she assumes jurisdiction anyway. It looked to me like the Justice Department had three options, and I'm going to see how clever they are if they took the options that I would have taken. Number one, they could appeal the way uh, 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 former Attorney General Barr said they should appeal. That's one route, except that Six of the 11 judges in the 11th Circuit were appointed by Trump. I'm not saying that they're all corrupt. I'm just saying I'd be a little leery. I'm saying that the court never had jurisdiction in the first place. All right. So that in that sense, an appeal is, is proper. But the second thing is you shouldn't stick with that judge because she's demonstrated her bias. So the appeal in that sense is a good idea, but it's going to involve further delay. What? Why not start an ancillary action in D.C. under the act? Because that's the court that has jurisdiction. And if that occurred, then it would seem to me that they would be in better shape than just appealing in the 11th Circuit. I would have gone to the D.C. courts with a, an original cause of action. And uh, I, we will see what happens. I'm not saying the appeal is necessarily a bad deal because uh, I think Professor Lawrence Tripe was leaning war towards that, too. But I, what we're going to see, it's better than sticking with a judge who's already biased. All right. Number one, she doesn't have jurisdiction because it's the Presidential Papers Act of Congress and that the D.C. courts have jurisdiction and that's where she, that's where they should go. Well, I'm going to have you back on when somebody makes a decision so we can expand on that one. But as always, I'm glad to have you here and I'm glad you and Adam Smith were able to talk about how long you guys have been hanging together. So, and uh, he's been nothing but a success. So I guess if you're around Lim Howe, you're going to succeed. So thank you right. much, Lim Howe. My, my, my candidate was Howard Dean. His okay. was uh, the vice president, Gore. But Oh, well. As a, <laughs> All right, just then. One, one thought before I leave you is what if Gore had acted the way Trump did now? At least he would have a legitimacy. He would have legitimacy because of what happened 
the Supreme Court stopping the vote count in, in uh, Florida. That's right. Okay, Lim Hal, thanks much. Uh, Eric, we'll okay. go ahead and take this break. I see that my guests for the next segment are already on, uh, Ms. Don Bennett. So, uh, Lim, we'll get you when, when uh, we have uh, the next decision made by the courts on what they're going to do. Okay. So, okay. So, Eric, we'll go ahead and take the break. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxshops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. There's a reason they invented the internet. It's called 1150kknw.com. That was my sister in the struggle and my sister in Christ, uh, Patronelle Wright, the Total Gospel Experience Choir. But I do want to give a shout out to the City of Seattle's Purchasing and Construction Services Office. Uh, one of our sponsors was Liz, Jesse, Carol, and Mark in Sound Transit's Office of Civil Rights, uh, Diversity and Inclusion with John Tay Robinson, the Port of Seattle's Diversity Contracting Office with Mian Rice, Lawrence Coleman, and Josie Regan, and SeaTac Rock Group LLC, uh, Jerry Whitsitt and Rod O'Neill, they own the Africa Lounge and the Mountain Room Bar on Concourse A at SeaTac. Now I want to go to Don Bennett, uh, Veriket, uh, Kiros, and uh, Saadi Abdullah, who is with, uh, first of all, Don is the chair of the Seattle King County NAACP Political Action Committee. Uh, Barricade is uh, the, what I guess the leader of the Coalition of Immigrants, uh, Refugees, and Communities of Color. I have one of them t-shirts. Velma Valoria got it for me. I, I've been working with y'all. And Saudi Abdullah, who is with the Delta Beta Sigma Sorority and an active member politically in the 30th District of Seattle. Look out, y'all. So anyway, they have a big event coming up, and I want Don Bennett to moderate this part of the program and tell everybody what's happening, and then you can have everybody else chime in as you see what their role is, okay? Go right ahead, Don Bennett. I got you, Mr. Rye. Thank you so much. Um, 
I, we, uh, uh, the Deltas, African American Leadership Forum is also, I'm the executive director of African American Leadership Forum and CERC. And I'll let them, the, all three of them talk about their, um, their organizations. But um, we're here to tell folks that we're doing a panel on the King County Prosecutor because it's really important that we folks from the BIPOC communities know what they're thinking and that they're listening to us also and not just listening to one group. So I'm gonna hand it over to Sadia so she can tell about hers and then she can throw it to Bearcat and then we'll get going with some questions. And so I wanna thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm Sadia G. Abdullah, the State Social Action Coordinator for Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And since our founding in 1913, um, those 22 women, their first act was that of social action and to march in the women's suffrage movement. And so Deltas have been getting in trouble, good trouble all the time. And so we want to be doing this forum was critically important for us. And so we wanted to partner um, with the NAACP and also with CERC. And so Barraquet was our partner for, for that portion of it. Thank you. Thank you, Eddie. It is a privilege for me to be here. Sachan, I can't, who is well known here for so many years uh, for your civil rights uh, service. And I met you in a different occasions uh, many times. And I just want to say thank you for your service. And you have been inspiring for many of us uh, like me. Yes. Migrant, yes. 1985 to this country. So. I am a very grateful, uh, and I am one of your admirers to let you know. I met you in many occasions with Velma Gloria and continue to, and I just wish you good health and also the energies that uh, Almighty God can give you so that you can inspire more of us uh, in sometime in the future. So Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Sir, uh, you know, we are the coalition uh, uh, immigrant, refugee, and communities of color. And our mission has to build, inform, engaged with equitability communities of CERC, established like 11 years ago with the help of uh, uh, Velma Valoria and uh, others uh, who saw the potential uh, for it. Uh, because many times, you know, we've been asked to vote, but uh, we don't have an opportunity on what issues uh, that uh, we like to pursue. So, this is one of the things that uh, we've been doing, uh, uh, candidate forum for uh, the, the mayor, city council, and for Congress and Port of Seattle. And, and many of our questions are uh, from communities of color. Uh, we ask candidates, uh, you know, what do they do if uh, they're going to get our vote? So right. questions are right. basically driven uh, from communities of color. So we, at the end of the, you know, the candidates forum, we tape them and then we distribute to communities uh, of color through uh, social media. So uh, we have uh, focused three things. Uh, one, civic engagement, which includes the candidate forum and advocacy and voter registration and get out to vote. And the second it, uh, is community engagement, which includes uh, building our network members to us to expand beyond uh, immigrants uh, just uh, to be part of the big coalition of uh, African-Americans. Uh, without their support, we know we cannot succeed. So we have to work together as a, a unit uh, 
uh, underserved youth media. Those are the future and uh, trying to engage them in a civic. Uh, so we've been doing some work with the Central Community College, the University of Washington, and others uh, to expand that the civic engagement is vital for communities of color. I'm just talking about my microphone's muted. Okay, I'm going to go back to Don Bennett. Okay, th uh, thank you. So, you know, it, it's really, as Barricade was saying, um, this is a four-way partnership from BIPOC communities to ensure that our young people, as Barricade uh, continues to say, our young people are civically involved. You know, they have been taking a pass and not doing it and not being trained. And it's up to the, all of us on this call to, to make sure that we are civically involved. And one of the ways that the four-way part, partnership has decided to do this is to come out to the communities and do these panels. We just did a, a few more panels uh, a month ago with CERC and African-American Leadership Forum and NAACP. Um, the Deltas got wind of it and said, uh-oh, we want to go on this ride too. Let's go. And it's a partnership where we can get bunches of, of folks out outreaching to young people. And also our seniors are very important in bringing the young people along because they, the seniors have been doing the work. The seniors, our seniors from the BIPOC community, they know the politics. And so I am one who um, I really respect my elders. I really respect the storytelling of our elders. I've learned from my grandmother and my mother about how hard we're supposed to work in civics. So I ran for office. And so to tell us about what we're going to do on the 17th, I'm going to throw it over to Sadia, who also ran for office. So again, I'm going to throw it on over after I've talked about the importance of young people. Got to throw it over to Sadia to tell you about what we're doing. And so the reality is the King County prosecutors race, all, all elections are important. I come from that sort of background that every election is important, but the King County prosecutors race, the reality is we haven't seen a competitive race in about 15 years, right? And so what we have are two candidates who want to make sure, who want to lead um, in, in that office. And so we need to understand that the prosecutor is more just an attorney, right? They, they're the most important attorney in the process right. because they, and they alone get to decide whether or not a person is charged with a crime that could actually lead to that person's freedoms being taken away. And so what we want to do is to make sure that that this is the opportunity for the community to come out and to hear what these candidates have to say so that they can make an educated choice. But what's also important is you look at this group of people that are here, we're centering Black people. And I want to make that very clear. This is about making sure that our voices are centered. We are oftentimes over police, we are oftentimes over prosecuted, and we are oftentimes over sentenced. And so what we need to know is that whoever is the next King County prosecutor, that they will center equity, that they will center humanity, and that yes. they will make sure that they are creating a system that is not perpetuating the, the, the old form, but actually looking forward toward a new direction. And so as we come together, those are the questions that we'll be asking. We'll be putting together Delta Sigma Theta's legislative priority, NAACP's legislative priority, CERC's legislative priority, and asking those questions that are important to us. We want to know what's going to happen when you get a young brown boy that has no criminal record um, and he's made a mistake in the community. Are you sending him to jail? Or are you going to give the, the community an opportunity to step up and wrap their arms around them in a restorative justice model? 
How are you going to do that, to go about doing that work? And so that's why we've come together. So we will be doing this forum on September the, um, September the 17th. It will be at the Kent Commons, which is located at 525 4th Avenue North in Kent at 5.30 p.m. So that's September 7th on a Saturday at 5.30 p.m. So come out, come to the forum, then go out to dinner so that you all can make an, uh, an educated decision on who you should be voting for for King County Prosecutor. Hey, I'll tell you what, uh, we'll give this an, uh, I should give us a shout out again next Thursday as well. Thank you. But I do want to thank uh, Don Bennett, Veracat, Heroes, and Saudi Abdul from the Deltas. The Black Leadership Forum, is that it, uh, Don? African-American Black uh, Leadership. African-American African Leadership Forum. Leadership Forum, yes. Okay, and Veracat is with the community, uh, the Coalition of Immigrants, Refugees, and Communities of the Pillar. And uh, we have the Delta Sigma Theta Asadia J. Abdulli. Okay, so thank you guys very much. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Have thank a great Thank you for day. having we'll us. Shout, shout, I'll give you a shout out next week. So here we'll take a break with some Pat Wright music and come back after this. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at Port Seattle. Org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxhops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk 1150. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, that was the late Patronell Wright who passed away earlier this week, uh, known for the Total Experience Gospel Choir. But before I go to my guests, I want people to know that Aaron Lopez, Department of Financial, Financial Institutions in Olympia, wants you to know that there's a Zoom DFI hosted at a DEI community meeting. It's going to be Wednesday, September 14th from 10 to 11.30 a.m. And... Uh, you can reach out to uh, DEI and I have some more information for you uh, so that you'll be able to attend. Okay, I wanna go to my next guest now, uh, a bunch of uh, 
best-selling authors and uh, Jamie Elmore is the editor-in-chief of Ball Life magazine, also founder of the Alopecia Support Group. And uh, she was going to be joined by Robert Bobby Ford, a retired uh, police officer who is a best-selling author, Gabriel Carter, a brand developer and content uh, marketer. Uh, he, he has an alopecia story. And Melvin Dolberry Jr., who's a former professional basketball player, is also a best-selling author. So Jamie Elmore and gang, thank you for being here. Uh, so Jamie, uh, since you know more about these brothers, although we've had Melvin on before, why don't you go ahead and get started with the salient points that they're going to bring out. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much, Mr. Rye, for having us this afternoon. I appreciate all that you do for the community and especially for me and the Alopecia Support Group. I'm just super excited to be here today. And I know we don't have much time, but I have my amazing brothers here with me on the interview today. And actually, the month of September is very special. It is Alopecia Awareness Month. So this is perfect, perfect timing and a perfect day. So what I want to do is just frame up everything and, and then just get everybody rocking and rolling here. So today we have three of the four best-selling authors of the book title, Alopecia, His Story. And one of our guests, um, one of our members um, who is not here, his name is Mr. Charles Lyles. He is also part of um, our book, but he was not able to attend with us today. But what is alopecia? Alopecia is a autoimmune disease. It's where your immune system attacks your hair follicle and causes your hair to fall out. Now, there are over 6.8 million people in the U.S. and 147 million people worldwide that have this disease. Now, it's not contagious, but one thing about alopecia is that it does not discriminate. That means that it can happen to any age, gender, or race. And so I really want to um, emphasize that. But today, I just want to um, shine the light on my brothers and shine the light on alopecia from a male perspective. And this book that we have rolled out and produced is the first on the market. It has never, ever been done. So these men have created history. And I wanted to provide a voice, provide a platform, and um, set a table. So they could um, sit at it, sit at it, and share their stories. And so I want to just jump right in and do a little round robin and ask a few questions um, with my brothers regarding this journey and their journeys. And I want to start off with um, my brother Gabriel. I want to know if you can tell um, our guest how old you were when you started um, noticing that you had alopecia and/or diagnosed. And why did you say yes to this project? Well, first off, thank you for having me. Um, I'm happy to be here to tell my story during Alopecia Awareness Month. Um, I was diagnosed with alopecia at uh, the age of eight, um, and I am now 28, so it's been a 20-year journey for me. Um, and I decided to share my story in the book because uh, there was a lot of Kind of grief associated with processing my identity around um, something that I couldn't control, trying to live well in my skin and be comfortable. Um, and it was it was a struggle that I didn't want other people to have to go through. 
um, and to know that they had some people who had already been through the situation before um, and just provide a guiding light for, you know, young alopecians out there, as well as people who might not be young but are dealing with hair loss that um, this journey is something we all go through, learning to be comfortable in our skin. And this is just my journey depicted in this book. Awesome. You are amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. We're going to keep it rolling. So, Mr. Robert Ford, Ford can you tell us how old you were and uh, what made you to say yes to becoming an author on this pro um, project? I just want to first say to Mr. Wright, thank you for having us. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. But for me, it happened in my mid-30s. Uh, I was working as a police officer at the time. And, you know, I was feeling good about myself, uh, real confident and um, that's when it hit me. It's been, you know, going on 30 years now for me. Uh, but when the opportunity came, uh, Jamie approached me about it and uh, the project just spoke to me and uh, I just wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to lend my voice uh, to it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, to say the least, uh, to be able to do that and be able to see it come to fruition and to be able to make those connections with my fellow co-authors and others that we've uh, uh, been able to reach out and touch, it's, it's uh, been very, very rewarding to say the least, so. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Ford, for that. I gotta say my brother, thank you so much for that. And to my nephew, I'm gonna give you the same question. How old were you when you first um, got diagnosed with alopecia and what made you say yes to join this project? All right, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, first of all, Mr. Mr. Rod, thank you for having us on the show. Um, second time you did have us on here. It's definitely a blessing and grateful opportunity. Um, my name is Melvin Darbury Jr. I was five years old when I first um, was diagnosed with alopecia. I'm 32 years old now, so it's been about 27 years. Um, and kind of like everyone knows, um, you know, it was a tough situation we had to all go through. But um, I decided to do the book. The, um, take the opportunity to do the book because number one, it was never something that's never been done before in history. So um, I thought it'd be a great start to, you know, be able to tell our stories and be the first ones to do it and, and inspire other people to be able to open up and be able to tell theirs as well. Um, like I said, each and every one of us have a story and we're all unique and special in our own different ways. So it was just a blessing and a great opportunity for me to be able to share my story and, you know, get to meet like, Mr. Robert say each other and all the other co-authors and be able to just connect on that level. And hopefully we can continue to inspire other people as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Gabriel, I want to ask you, you know, there's a lot of uh, stigma or misunderstanding on how alopecia affects men. Can you tell us what was your lowest point and can you just give us some insight on, you know, that not being true, how men have their own journeys as well? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know a lot of people can't see us, but there's a lot of bald heads on here and mine is not bald. Um, I keep my patches. Um, I never felt like being completely bald was an authentic expression of who I was. Um, so I look different than everybody. And I think a lot of the times when you look different than people, you're often met with anger or amusement. And I've dealt with both. Um, and there's been a lot of internal struggles trying to feel comfortable um, how, you know, in my own skin. I think one of my lowest moments was kind of getting um, 
you know, in college where everyone is learning who they are and enjoying finding those classes and subjects that they really enjoy. Um, I was trying to do all that while still trying to maintain composure of like feeling comfortable and not under immense anxiety. I think every time that I was in a situation where there was a crowd, I was always worried that my hat would fall off or something like that. And I kept feeling like I would be exposed. And after so long, it just gets tired. It just gets, uh, you just, it's a burden to kind of like wake up every day and live in this skin that you don't feel comfortable in. So I think uh, that was my sophomore year of college. I really hit a low moment there. Um, but I was able to be around some good friends and uh, find some good support groups that really helped uh, me feel comfortable. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Now, Mr. Ford, you are married. You've been married to your beautiful wife for about I think, 40 years. What would you say or what words of advice would you give a, a wife that has a husband and or a son or a boyfriend that is uh, living with alopecia? What words could you tell them um, in which they can be more support to them on their journeys? I think I would say just be supportive uh, and learn as much about uh, alopecia as you can because um, not knowing and um, it, it could be a hindrance to the relationship but but for me just just having that love and that support from my, from my wife uh, knowing what I was going through and and for me as a as a man uh, I was able to overcome my um, my fears about what she would think about me because of her support and so I was able to um, it was able it was it was it allowed me to deal with what I was going through uh, because I had put so much stock into having hair. And, and once it, once I started losing it and losing it and at such a rapid pace, uh, I, at first I didn't understand, but once I did understand what was going on with my body, um, having, having to come to grips with what was, under, what was going on, uh, it was hard for me, but having that support of a wife uh, definitely made a difference. So find out, uh, those of you who are in relationships uh, with someone who has alopecia, especially for men, if they're men, uh, know more, learn as much about it as you can, and uh, really listen to your to your uh, better to your, uh, your 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 mate while they're going through it. So I think that makes a difference. Awesome! Thank you so much. That's that's very rich, and that and I think. All women need to know that. And Melvin, I want to ask you, you being a man, you know, you go through puberty, you, you go through changes naturally. But if there was um, some part of your body that you could get your hair, your hair back, what part of that body, what, what would that be and why? Um, I would have to say facial hair, if anything. You know what I'm saying? I never got to have this experience to have like, you know, a beard or nothing like that. I'm cool. I'm cool with the smooth head. Like, I mean, women love that and that stuff anyway, so it's cool. But, uh, um, yeah, just I would have to say facial hair, to be honest. I never got to, like, experience. I mean, I got a couple little chain hairs, but it's nothing serious. Like, I never got to actually have, like, that that look. Because, I mean, that really changes our whole appearance of our face. Like, you know, like, not having the eyebrows and stuff like that. But that would probably be the main thing I would probably say. Wow. That's awesome. That is so good to know. Mr. Rye, um, did you have a questions? Did you have any questions for our uh, for our panelists and or, or and or myself? No, I, I really just appreciate uh, uh, you guys sharing this information. Um, 
two hours after this broadcast, it will be accessible on Alexa and also on my podcast uh, for the rest of the week, 24-7 for the rest of this week. <clears throat> and also it will be archived on my urbanforumnw.com website for a year. And so any parts of this uh, conversation that you want to use, you can, you're welcome to use because it, it's been recorded. So sometimes when you send people a little bit of excerpt of what's been said might help uplift someone else who's looking for some solutions. And that's why I like so much about working with Jamie because she's always seeking solutions and is very innovative and a trailblazer uh, in the kind of work that she does. Uh, you know, I think about this young lady that had alopecia and a friend of ours that owns uh, Ezel's famous chicken in the area uh, actually went in and brought the, uh, the, uh, the little girl and her, uh, her mother up to Seattle and Jamie took care of the rest. And last I heard, she was still flourishing and being a success socially and academically. So, you know, it's amazing what you can do when you reach out to help someone and the information you guys dispense with today will help a lot of people because they want to know about alopecia, they can call Jamie or they can go on Urban Forum NW and they can hear these interviews. And, and like I said, you guys can hear them as well. So thank you very much. I really do appreciate what you guys are doing. And I'm still mourning the loss of my sister, Pastor Pat Wright, who passed away earlier this week. She was very famous in this area and sang all around the country. So Thank you guys very much. Jamie, please share my contact information with the, with the gentleman. So if they have a question, want to communicate, we can stay in touch because if there's anyone that calls me, has a, if I can't find Jamie, I can find one of y'all. Yes. <laughs> so yes, they get the information because a lot of people, you know, they're looking for solutions and how they're going to live their life because they see themselves as being different. And Jamie, he, she don't want to admit it, but I think that uh, one member of Congress decided that the wig had to go. But anyway, she don't want to take credit. But the Baltimore Sun did a front page article on Jamie. So, hey, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate you today. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, before we go, I want to give a shout out to the City of Sales Purchasing and Construction Services Department with uh, Director Liz Alzier, Sound Transit's Office of Civil Rights, Diversity and Inclusion, headed up by John T. Robinson. The Port of Seattle's Diversity Contracting Office, headed up by Mian Rice. Assisted by Lawrence Coleman and Josie Reagan. SeaTac Bar Group, LLC. Jerry Whitsett and Rod O'Neill are the owners. And they own the Africa Lounge and the Mountain Room Bar on Concourse A uh, out at SeaTac. So uh, once again, giving a shout out of condolence to my sister in the struggle, Pastor Patronelle Wright. Eddie Rye will be talking with you again next week. Eric, thanks for everything. Have a good weekend.